This is Pod Populi, podcast for the people. Hi, my name is Dr. Sarah Adams. I am a board-certified pediatrician, but I'm not your pediatrician. Feel free to use my podcast as helpful information, but in no way do I intend my podcast to replace the advice of your physician. Your physician knows you and is in the best position to provide medical advice. Hello, and welcome to Growing Up with Dr. Sarah. It's hard to believe that we're already halfway through summer, which sometimes I don't want to think about, but then I do get excited about fall. And we all know that school is right around the corner. I didn't want to wait to talk about a very important subject, and that is special education. So let's talk about what exactly is special education or special needs education. And it's basically the practice of educating students with special needs in ways that address their individual differences and needs. And it's individually planned and systematically monitored. And it's typically arranged through adapting equipment, material, teaching procedures, accessibility, you know, what their setting is, and other interventions. I, as a pediatrician, I have a lot of patients in my practice with special needs or disabilities, but I wanted to bring on a very special guest. As many of you know, I typically recruit my family into my podcast because um, I think highly of them, of course, but I also know that they have a wealth of knowledge to offer. So today, my cousin, Olga Lingo, who is a special education teacher, she has her master's in uh, teaching in special education, and I've asked her to Join me today, and I want to let you know a little bit about her. She now lives in Mooresville, North Carolina, with her husband, Marty. She has three kids and three grandchildren, and started with a BA uh, in liberal arts and social work through Kent State University, and then, as I mentioned, got her master's in teaching and special education at the University of North Carolina. She's been teaching for 18 years in special education in the areas of severe, profound, and moderate intellectual disabilities. Currently, she's in the area of occupational course of study for students with mild intellectual and specific learning disabilities. So she has a lot of experience in this area, and I'm very honored that she is on my show today. Welcome, Olga, and thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, we've been talking about this for a while, and I thought this is good timing because Pretty soon, teachers are going to, even though the kids aren't going to be back in the classroom, teachers are going to be back in yes. um, in the schools, and I'm all right. about getting prepared, you know. Um, right. So tell me a little bit, I know we have that great bio, but just tell me a little bit about, you know, your experience, and we talked a little bit yesterday. I always joke that whenever I talk to people before the podcast, I wish that the recording was on at that moment. So <laughs> what is your take on like special education? I, I just gave the definition, but it's like such a broad subject. Well, um, I think part of the 
thing, um, one of the things that we've done is we, we've changed the wording to exceptional children. And I think that kind of takes some of the sting a little bit, um, you, you know, because as a parent, especially when you just find out your child has a disability, it, it parents need time to process what their child's been diagnosed with or, or identified as. And uh, so there's some denial and, and, and of course, you know, wanting to know what do I do? What do I need to do to meet the needs of my child? What, what is going to happen now? Um, so obviously the earlier you get your child identified earlier they can get the assistance they need to become more successful. The thing a lot of parents need to understand about what the schools provide versus say what a private uh, provider for um, things like speech therapy, physical therapy, occupational therapy, things like that. The big difference is the school is going to provide what your child needs to be successful in their academic environment to be able to access their academic setting. So, for example, if they're offered speech therapy or physical therapy, it's not going to be the same as getting private therapy. They may only get 15 minutes a week or a half an hour a week. And that also varies by state. So depending on what state you live in, you know, and the funding they have and the type of services they offer, it just you have to understand what the uh, laws are in your state and what is provided for your child based on what your state system has to offer. So we have a lot of parents that move from places like New York and Ohio and things like that, where there's generally more money and they come to an area like North Carolina where we don't offer as much. We offer comparable services, but not um, generally not what they're used to getting in, in more expensive states. And, and there is somewhat of a, of a shock and adjustment, but um but the child will get services that they need to access their academic environment. So I think they need to understand that. Let's backtrack for just a minute and say, so what are these difficulties in school or physical or mental differences that we're actually talking about? Like when you talk about these exceptional students, and I love that term. Mm hmm. What are we actually talking about? Who qualifies? I mean, we can, we'll talk about how to get the testing, but let's, let's talk about who actually falls under that, um, that except that I don't even want to use the word label. Who, who right. what type of diagnosis? I guess that's a better way to put it. What type of diagnosis do you, typically see or would qualify for what we know in any state is a is a law such as the Individuals with Disability Education Act, which I realize looks different from every state, as you mentioned, and I'm glad that you did. Right. But what are some of the um, the diagnosis, the disorders, um, the typical things that you see that then falls under that umbrella of being able to either be tested or they've already been tested and now they've got the uh, ability to gain these resources. Right. Um, well, generally autism is, is huge. And generally a lot of those kids are diagnosed early 
usually by two, three, four years old. So they come into school with that already. And the school knows that this child comes in with a diagnosis. And then, so depending on what type of issues that are with their diagnosis, whether they're high functioning and they're, they're able to communicate, um, depends on on what services they'll need. If they have difficulty communicating, then we know that they're going to need speech, to, you know, some type of speech services. If they have some motor skills issues, like if they're um, they tend to have difficulty uh, sitting in their seat or um, going up and down stairs safely. They might need physical therapy. Occupational therapy helps with sensory issues. If they have difficulty with the lights in the classroom or holding scissors or pencil, that kind of thing, then occupational therapy comes in. So when a parent, if, if it's not an obvious disability as far as something like autism that's diagnosed early, then generally it's something that the teacher may recognize that the child with with whatever the teacher is doing in the classroom, the child is still not making progress. They've adapted the curriculum as best as they can. They've, they've tried all these different teaching approaches and it's the child is still not successful. They're not making progress. And so the teacher may say to the parent, I'm suspecting your child may have um, a disability, you know, we'd like to test. Or the parent could say, I think my child has a disability, I'm requesting testing. And so when that happens, the teacher, if the teacher suspects, they'll do what's called a referral. If the parent suspects, they can ask for a referral. Once that happens, the, the school has 90 days to complete the testing process by law. So basically what we're talking about is physical disorders, you know, um, psychiatric disorders, emotional problems, behavioral problems, and learning differences. And those are kind of the key components, whatever their diagnosis is, that could fall under the um, need to be evaluated and have what we call an individual education plan. Although if there's anything I've learned from COVID, I think every child needs an individual education yeah. plan. Um, well, and, you know, a child could have behavior issues, but could be academically successful. So in a case like that, if it's a behavior issue, they would do something called a behavior plan, a behavior intervention plan. They may not necessarily need an IEP. Okay. Um, it just depends. Um you know, if a child obviously has a physical disability such as cerebral palsy or or some type of, of um, like spina bifida or something, and but they academically they're fine, intellectually they're they're you know right on on uh, path with their peers, general ed peers. Um, then we just would have to have adapt adaptations or some type of. Um, something in the classroom to ha have them be able to access their uh, learning environment, whether it's a special desk or um, a keyboard to type notes instead of writing notes, things like that. Yeah. Um, you know, it just depends on what say, their needs are. I would say like accessibility, like you said, but also safety. I mean, sometimes right. with some of these right. kids with, well, with any of these concerns, um, Safety should probably be part of their plan one way or another. And there is right. something called like a 504, which I know is it's 
it basically is kind of like what you're talking about because it's meant to help students so they're not discriminated against if they do have some um, disabilities, but they might not qualify for an IEP, for example, but it does have some reasonable uh, accommodations, you know, maybe. Right untimed tests. Like I think of ADHD when I think of a 504, for example, or maybe a 504 could be for um, more emotional or behavioral, uh, depending on the severity. Yeah. Some of the most common adaptations or accommodations, I should say, that we use in a 504. I don't, I don't do 504s because the majority of the students that are on a 504 are in the general education setting. Um, but the accommodations are generally extended time, uh, testing in a smaller setting instead of a full class. They may be in a in a group of, say, 12 or less. Um, and then, ex- of course, extended time or more frequent breaks, that kind of thing. Um, a lot of my students, generally, the accommodation, the accommodations that my students get on their IEPs, they get all of those kind of things, but they also get read aloud because they struggle with reading. Mm -hmm. So aside from any other test besides English, English, they don't provide read aloud, but every test is read to them by the computer. They wear headphones. It's all computerized testing and they wear headphones and the the test is read to them, all the questions and answer choices. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So they don't have to worry about trying to read the test. Um, you know, themselves on their own. I bet that reduces a lot of anxiety in these kids. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm sure it does. I'm sure it does. It's um, it it just more levels, you know, helps to level the playing field a little bit. Um, So you mentioned that the teacher can can make a referral and the parents can ask for one. So then Walk me through that. What happens at that point? Like, what kind of testing do they do? And I know it could be different based on the concern, but just some examples. Well, generally, um, they have a meeting once they make the referral and they go over, they choose, there's a list of tests and the general uh, list that, you know, basically, unless they suspect something, you know, specific, they'll the first thing we test for are vision and hearing. We want to make sure the child doesn't have any vision problems or hearing issues first. Yeah, that's a good and point. And as long as, yeah, as long as the child passes those, we know that, that it's not a hearing problem or a vision problem. Uh, then they'll test for, they'll do academic testing to find out where, where they are on uh, academic level. They'll do psychological testing for IQ. Uh, they'll do a screening for speech. Um, they don't necessarily do a occupational screening unless they suspect that is a, an issue that's really not very often. They do a, a gross motor screening. Um, they also do an autism uh, rating scale. They'll do a, a behavioral rating scale. And the, they have a parent fill out and the teacher fill out the forms of those and compare um, Trying to think what else. There's several different forms. And I imagine if there's some, I know we use a Vanderbilt or a Connors rating scale, which is much like you mentioned where the teacher fills Mm -hmm. one out uh, and then the parent does as well. Uh, I think Mm -hmm. when I've seen some of the workup, because I don't don't do the evaluations, but many times patients will 
come or parents will come in with their child and and show me all of the evaluation. It's quite extensive, actually. Yeah, they do a social emotional. They have to do two observations in in two separate settings of, you know, an academic and then a non-academic setting to see how the student functions in both of those settings. And then they also have to um, do an evaluation or attempt to to see how at least two academic interventions to see if, if why that's not working. In other words, they have to say, well, you know, we tried this um, um, adaptive reading program and the child still did not make progress. Or we tried this math intervention program and it still did not help this child make progress. So they have to show that the teacher is making an attempt that it's not, you know, all of the, the problems the child is struggling with or having, it's not a result of the teacher not providing everything the child needs and that it's not a result of a hearing or vision issue, you know, and so you get all of this information together and, and then the, the people that, that do the observations and do the testing, they compile a report and then we meet again and go over all the results and, and determine, you know, what the child's disability is and then come up with a an IEP that will address those issues. So what is the, and this is done within the school, correct? Right, right. Okay, because I know parents could do it, they can, they can certainly consult or do it outside, like through professional, but they, right. they would have to pay for that out of pocket. Whereas right. if they are evaluated within the school, they, um, you know, there's, state funding um, right. uh, for them to be evaluated. Now, what kind of timing do you see, like from beginning of referral to actually having that IEP or that plan? I mean, what? 90 days. 90 days. Okay. So they yeah, have to get to it done, done in 90 days. Right. Okay. That's good yeah, to know. The clock's ticking. Yeah. The clock starts ticking once, once that recommendation or that referral has been made. And so I would say to parents out there, you know, date your requests, make copies yes. of any of your records, you know, yes. put all your requests in writing for the evaluation and services Absolutely. because yeah. you want to keep careful records because, I mean, schools are very busy and just like anywhere else, everybody is shorthanded. And so kind of keeping track of any observations that you know or have been reported to you by the teachers, any communications, mm -hmm. any results, you know, just continue to, you know, make a little binder or folder and, and keep track of that because time does fly by, right? And we want to make sure right. that everybody is, you know, that if you really are concerned about your child, that this is something, um, you know, we want to see get done. What? Yeah. And then um, do parents have a say in regards to what the IEP will include or do they at least get a copy of it, for example, so that they know what to kind of follow up on and be able to um, see if there's also noticing changes as well? Um, yeah, it's well, it's a team decision. Everything in the IEP is a team decision. Um, parent input is, is obviously a big part of it. Um, the parent, uh, you know, if they disagree with something, 
Um, you know, they they don't necessarily have to agree with everything that's in it. Um, I've had parents disagree with with the level of, like I said, things like speech therapy and, you know, they felt their child should receive more um, things like that. And, you know, we try to explain to them that that's it, it's the service that the school offers is just to access and be successful in their academic environment. And it's, it's hard to let a parent know that this is not equal to private therapy right. because they, they really feel like, you know, their child should get more than, than the 30 minutes twice a week or, you know, and I understand their frustration, but, you know, this is something that, that I think a lot of parents struggle with. But, you know, I just tell my parents, You're, you are your child's advocate. Um, there are sources out there if you don't like something the school is doing, you have a right to to pursue different avenues to get an advocate to come to the meetings. Um, the The teacher should provide you with a handbook that shows that get, it's all about parent rights. So, you know, I highly encourage parents to make sure they get that handbook and read it because it outlines all of the rights as a parent for you and your student. Um, you know, your child, what their rights are as far as what they're entitled to with their exceptional education. Um, so it's, you know, basically the IEP is it, it should cover accommodations. It should cover uh, specific goals academically and maybe behaviorally. If the child's receiving services like speech, the speech therapist will write goals that they should achieve. And it lasts for one year. So, so whatever goals that the teacher and the therapist set up, they have one year to achieve those goals. And if, and throughout the year, you should be getting progress reports showing the data, the teachers need to be taking data and the, the therapists need to be taking data. You know, if, if, for example, your child's goal is to answer um, comprehension questions on a passage with 80% accuracy, four out of five times. So you should be getting data saying how many times, you know, like what percentage they're answering those questions at how many times. So if they're only, if, if say the first progress report, there may be at 60%, four out of five times. Okay, well, that's, that's okay. They're making progress. Um, but then if the next progress report says they're still at 60%, Okay, we're at halfway through the year because they get a progress report every nine weeks or every, I'm sorry, every, yeah, every nine weeks. So um, some schools do every four weeks. So it just depends. If they're not making progress, we have to say, hmm, you know, maybe the goal needs to be adjusted or some, you know, the teacher is supposed to use the data to say, to look at things and go, okay, maybe we need to change something. Something's not working. But if they're making steady progress, then you then you would say on the progress report, making progress to meet the goal. But if they're not making progress, say after, you know, six weeks, eight weeks, then we need to look look at it and say, okay, wait a minute, we need to change some things. We need to use that. It should be data driven. The, you know, their teaching is based on that IEP and should be data driven. And same thing with the therapist. They need to look at what, what their, um, goal is for their therapy and how much progress they're making. And then unfortunately, at some point, usually about uh, 
middle school, like sixth grade, seventh grade, sometimes kids reach a plateau depending on their level of disability and they start exiting them out of, of some of their therapies. And that's very, I think, you know, frustrating for parents because they feel like they should still receive it, the therapy. So it just, you know, it's just the therapists feel that if, if they're not making any progress at this point, they've reached the level that they're going to meet and that's it. So, you know, as a parent, again, you have to decide what, if you agree with that or not. And, you know, you can get an advocate, I guess, to, to fight for that. It just depends on the data. I didn't realize that, but that's a good point. And I would imagine too, on the flip side of that, they may also not qualify at some point because they have improved. They've gotten better. Right. Some kids reach their goals and, and then they get exited because like I have a student that she's able to master her environment without any problems. She doesn't need physical therapy anymore. She's in high school now and she really doesn't need the physical therapy and, and her parents have agreed. And, you know, the data shows that she doesn't need it. So, you know, that's, that's, it's all based on data. Mm-hmm. So if the data shows that they're just not making progress, no matter what you've tried or that they've reached their goal, you know, then they usually will exit them from the therapies. But academics, we just keep going. You know, we will we'll tweak the goal if they don't make progress on the academic goal. We'll tweak it. We'll make changes to it. If they do make progress and meet the goal, then we just, you know, we move on to a new goal. Now, when... When we talk about the classroom setting, I've heard terms like inclusion or mainstreaming mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. even so can you can you touch a little bit on that about what that really means because not all some students are with yeah explain it cuz it's I don't want to I don't want to botch it because it's That's okay. So um some students um the ones that I taught were in completely self-contained environments because they their intellectual ability was just not of a level where even with accommodations and and you know any type of um, adjustments or or you know um, adaptations they just would not be successful it, it was just not a good environment for them so, they would have inclusion with things like music or PE things like that sometimes we could we would put them in with general ed kids for that type of of inclusion environment but generally they just it just was not the right environment for them so but, so self-contained means that they have pretty much a full-time placement Right. In a, a classroom and that they they're not typically with they're not with some of the typically developing students. Right. Okay. Right. We would we would be with the typically developing peers for lunch and assemblies okay. if we could. Yeah. And, and some of our students sensory wise, they couldn't handle it. It was just not good for them to be in an environment that was noisy and loud and chaotic. Yeah. So we just couldn't do it. Um, but it just depends on the kid, you know, on the, the child, if they can handle it. But I'm a big advocate for inclusion. I yeah. think the more they need to be out with their general ed peers, the better. 
Um, I had several kids that would go out in with an assistant and they would join the general ed art and music and PE. Some kids need adapted PE because of their physical disabilities. So that was hard for them to be in a regular PE class. They would need an adaptation for that. But um, and then you have kids that we call it resource where they're pulled out for specific things like math or English, you know, language arts um, and they would usually, it was, it was, ba- it's basically like a class period where they would be in with um, their other resource peers with a special ed teacher um, in a separate setting. But otherwise, for all of their other academic classes, they would be with their general ed peers. And then you have inclusion students that are in with their general ed peers all the time, but they have a special education teacher in the classroom with them adapting the material that the general ed teacher is teaching and helping them to in the classroom. Okay. So some of them, so some kids, they stay in their class and there's someone, some sort of interventionalist basically who is working with those exceptional students. And then there's some students who kind of have, sometimes they're spending time in the classroom and then sometimes they're, they're in a, in a different educational setting. Right. But the ones that are in inclusion, they're with their general ed peers all the time just for certain classes. It may just be math or it may just be language arts or it may be both. They're, they have a teacher in there, a special ed teacher in there helping them during that time. And I would imagine being a teacher, because I know as a pediatrician, these kids have taught me a lot, you know, too. Mm-hmm. Um and, uh, and I'm, you know, I'm, I love my job because I, you know, obviously love working with kids and, and so on. And, and I, I get a sense, you know, they, that I love being part of their family. I like, you know, doing what I can to help any family live their mm-hmm. best life. Would you share with us maybe a story or two about, um, maybe a difficult situation that, or even like a successful story I'd love to hear without obviously giving any details about any of your students, if you can think of one. Well, I mean, I've, I've had a couple, um, you know, you always feel like as a teacher that you just, at least for me, I struggle with always feeling like I just, I'm never doing enough. You know, when I, when I had my uh, self-contained kids, um, I just always felt like I, uh, I just, you know, it, I just always felt like I wasn't doing enough to make for them to make progress. And I had this one student that I just loved him to death. I mean, I love them all, but this kid really had a special place in my heart. And when he moved, his family had to move and, uh, they had to switch schools and his dad emailed me and said that they just wanted to thank me because their son made so much progress in the three years that he was with me than they had seen him make, you know, prior to when I started teaching there. And that really humbled me because I really didn't feel like I, I was, I mean, I saw the progress he was making, 
but to me, it didn't seem like enough. Like yeah. I felt like I thought, oh, you know, I wish I, he could have made more. But they were very happy with his progress. And they felt that he had made so much progress. And the new school that he was going to, they they wished that he they didn't have to switch because they didn't like the teacher he had. Aww. And I felt bad. I really felt bad for them. But Well, I think sometimes, too, and I've heard this before with other parents, when a student has an interventionalist, a teacher that they really like and and can work with and they trust. Because a lot mm-hmm. of times with these kids, it, it comes down to trust um, right, in, right. at some level. And so it, it's hard for them to move on for sure right. because, because of that. So the other teacher might not have been so bad, but it, they just know you. <laughs> Well, and and to be honest, you know, to just to put this out there on the flip side, I've also had parents tell me, you know, I was the worst teacher they've ever had. Oh, no. So, I mean, you know, it's it's big. But, you know, you have to understand these parents are they're hurting, they're struggling. You know, I don't take it personally because, you know, we don't know unless you have a child with disabilities, to, you know, some of these extremes like this, you don't know what these children and these parents go through every day. I mean, I, I would have these kids for six, seven hours a day. They're 24 yeah. seven. And so, you know, you do the best you can. And for some people, I don't know, it's just, it's hard. It's yeah. very hard. And having, you know, been through elementary and um, elementary level, the, I think it's still, a lot of parents struggle with denial and, and struggling with acceptance. And then by middle school, it gets a little easier. And then by high school, it's, you know, they, they know what, what their child is, is dealing with. They're, they're, they've been dealing with this for a long time and it's, it's, they're just more relaxed about it. But, um, well, and, you know. and I would imagine to, you know, ec- ec- these exceptional students, have exceptional parents and we're all just doing what we can. When you right, said, am I, right. am I doing enough? I think that that's, that's such a common, common theme. I know I feel that way in many areas of my life and, and it is nice to get somebody to say that, yeah, you're, you really have made a difference in, in their life. And I am so happy that we had this chance to scratch the surface on a very important subject yeah. And hopefully we've made a difference for some people out there that are listening. Any last thoughts before we close things up? Um, I do want to encourage parents that don't ever give up on your child. Um, we call it the least dangerous assumption. You know, you just never know. I know sometimes you look at this, your child and, and you see them struggle. You just you just don't know what they can accomplish. So remain hopeful encourage them, push them outside of their comfort zone. Don't, don't baby them. Let, you know, treat them just like any other child. Keep those expectations high. Your child will rise to meet it. You know, just, just be hopeful and, and just be encouraged. Thank you. I'm going to leave it at that. That was exceptional. So (laughs) thank you for listening. And don't forget to follow me wherever you like to listen to your shows like Spotify or Apple podcast. And let's grow up together.